All right, you guys can turn to the book of Genesis. Turn to Genesis 12. That's where we'll start this morning. We'll actually look at a number of places in Genesis, but you can start with Genesis 12. Students, I know you guys are getting ready to head out of town for Christmas break. I wanted to let you know uh, Christmas break can be pretty hard if that's not something you're aware of. You are outside of your routines, you're outside of your normal patterns, you're back into some places where maybe you have struggled with sin in the past. And so Christmas break can be a really challenging time. And so what I'm gonna be doing over the next few weeks is posting on on Twitter and Facebook good books to read, good articles to read, good verses to memorize, and good prayers to pray with one another so that we can encourage one another and hold one another accountable over this break to walk with the Lord. So as you're going home, make sure that you you grab a good book that will encourage your faith. You have some passages that you're going to memorize. You have some some things in place that will help you walk with the Lord during this this time that's that's a break from school, but it's not a break from temptation, right? You you don't get those in this life. So, So fight temptation well by walking with the Lord over this break. I'll try to post some resources to help you to do that. Well, the summer after my freshman year here at A&M, I went to work at a camp in the hill country, and it was my job to run the rappelling tower. So for those of you who aren't familiar with rappelling, the idea is you, you put a harness around your waist, and you tie onto a rope, and then you descend down a cliff. And, and if you get good at rappelling, it is really fun. It's really exciting to kick off from the wall and just go into free fall for a moment. I love it. It's really fun, but not for everyone. It was not fun for everyone that summer. I actually had to bandage a lot of bloody noses that summer. Repelling didn't go well, and it was always surprising. The kids with the bloody noses were usually the athletic kids because repelling, repelling is counterintuitive. If you try to rely on on your athletic ability, your strength, your power, your dexterity, then repelling doesn't work out for you. Because what's the secret of repelling? You can see it in the pictures. The secret of repelling is faith. You got to trust the rope. You get to the edge of the cliff and you lean back, way back, until all of your weight is supported on the rope. And then all your legs are doing is keeping you away from the wall. If you do that, then when the wall goes vertical, you will be safe and sound. You'll have a great time. But that's not what athletic kids want to do. They want to try to walk down the wall on their feet. And when the wall goes vertical, their feet slipped out from under them and bam, face first into the rock every time. Repelling is counterintuitive. Life is a lot like repelling. Life is counterintuitive. The more that you rely on your strength, on your intellect, on your abilities, on your resources, the worse life goes for you. The secret to doing life well is the same secret to doing repelling well. It's all about faith. It's all about learning to lean back and let the almighty hands of God carry you through the trials of life. Because at some point in all of our lives, the wall goes vertical. Life gets hard. And if you're trying to make it through life on your own two feet, then when the wall goes vertical, bam, you slip, you fall, you go face first into the wall. But if you are leaning back in faith, trusting in the almighty hands of God to carry you through the trials of life, then you will be safe and sound no matter what life throws at you. I'd like to prove that truth to you this morning by looking at the life of Abraham. 
So let's review for a moment. We, we met Abraham in Genesis 11 and 12 a couple weeks ago. What we learned about this man named Abraham, second most important guy in the Bible, just short of Jesus Christ, incredibly important man. We learned last time that he was an idolater. He grew up in a city called Ur. It was a city dedicated to the worship of the moon god. He was not a worthy man for what happened next in his story. The next thing that happens in his story is God chooses him. God calls him out of Ur and grants him incredibly gracious promises. Look with me at the beginning of chapter 12. These these great promises God gives to Abraham start in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." incredible blessings that God promises to Abraham. He was not worthy of them. This is all gracious. But to receive these promises, Abraham Abraham has to go. He has to leave the land he grew up in. He has to leave his family and go to the land of Canaan, the land that God would show him. How did Abraham do with that command? Well, actually, he, he did pretty well. We looked at that last time. We, we put together this map and saw that Abraham left Ur. He responded in faith, but then he struggled. He stopped halfway, stayed for a while in Haran. But finally, one day, he, he wised up, got back to obedience. He leaves his family, comes into the land of Canaan. And all the way through Canaan, he builds altars of worship to God. So, so Abraham did well. He, he walked in faith. That's why the book of Hebrews, when it looks back at this experience in Abraham's life, it concludes that by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham left his home. He left his family. He left everything he knew, never to return, and walked in obedient faith with God. Now, I read that verse And it makes me feel like Abraham is totally out of my league. And this guy's a stud. This guy's a great man of God, a great man of faith. Well, he was sometimes. Other times, not so much. Abraham struggled with faith just like you and me. He had great days and he had really, really bad days. He had great victories of faith, great victories of trust, and great failures of faith. And it's those failures that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to spend our time this morning walking through Abraham's great four failures of faith. We're looking at his failures because we want to learn from them. We want to understand how life works so that we can avoid his mistakes and avoid the pain that he brought to himself and others because he failed to walk with God in faith. So let's look at these four failures of faith in Abraham's life. Let's look at what we learn from them. The first failure came in a time of drought. A time of drought, right after the story that we talked about a moment ago. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. 
Okay, so Abraham is called by God to leave his home, his family, everything he knows, and go to the promised land. So he travels. It took him, it took him actually years to get from Ur to Canaan. He left everything he knew. He went on foot hundreds of miles, gets to the promised land, and what does he find? Nothing. It's, it's a drought. There's nothing growing. It's, it's a dry land. Abraham would have felt incredibly disappointed the moment he enters the promised land. This is the land I left everything for? A land that's dried, that's parched, where nothing will grow, where everyone is starving of hunger? Talk about in- incredible disappointment. I left home for this? But that disappointment quickly got replaced by fear. Because Abraham looks around and sees that drought, and in the ancient world, droughts were far worse than they are today. Because in the ancient world, mankind had very limited options for irrigation. Mankind had no refrigeration to store food. And so a drought represented a real and present danger to the survival of your family. So Abraham felt disappointment for a moment, and then it was replaced by intense fear. Is he going to be able to provide for his family? Is he going to be able to keep his family alive? Abraham feared for the survival of his family. And any time we face fear, we have a choice. That's the first lesson that we learn from Abraham's life. Anytime we feel fear, we face a choice. We can either trust God to provide and protect us in that fear, or we can rely on our own resources and abilities to protect us and provide for us. In this moment of fear, Abraham faces a choice. He can trust God. God said, go to the land that I will show you and I will bless you there. So Abraham could wait patiently on the Lord. In faith, he could trust that at some point, God is gonna step in and bless me and remove this drought. So he could walk in faith. Or he could choose to take matters into his own hands. He could rely on his intellect, his strength, his resources to rescue his family. Abraham chooses the latter option. Abraham relies on his intellect to craft a plan. He will leave Canaan, the land where God told him to go, and he will head south for Egypt. Now that is actually a plan that was highly intelligent. That that was a very wise plan. Here, I'll, I'll show you why. Here's a satellite image of the two places we're talking about. There's Canaan on the right, Egypt on the left. Canaan, dry as a bone. Egypt, incredibly lush and green because it has the Nile River running through the middle of it. The Nile always had water to irrigate cops. So if there was a drought, tell me, where would you rather be? The wise course of action was to head for Egypt. Every intelligent Canaanite went to Egypt when a drought set in. Yeah, God told me to, to hang out in Canaan, but, but was God really expecting a drought? Come on, he told me blessing and here's a drought. I don't think God was expecting this. Every wise person is headed south. That's the reasonable plan. So Abraham gives in to reason and heads south. He makes a plan to head to Egypt. Well, how does that plan work out for Abraham? Not really well. Not really well. He does escape the drought, but no sooner has he escaped the drought than he faces a far greater danger. A greater danger that will give Abraham his second opportunity and lead to his second failure of faith. Failure in a time of mortal danger. Look with me, chapter 12, starting in verse 11. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, 
See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. He comes near to Egypt, and as he's traveling towards Egypt, his heart begins to fill with fear. Why? Well, Abraham had never been to Egypt before. This is his first time to get to Egypt. He gets to Egypt, and he finds out it's not what he expected, It's not the safe haven he was looking for. Egypt in the ancient world was actually very violent, especially for those who were foreigners. If you were a foreigner traveling through Egypt and you had something that an Egyptian wanted, there was nothing to keep that Egyptian from killing you and taking what you had. Well, unfortunately for Abraham, he had something every Egyptian man wanted, Sarah, Apparently, Sarah was 65 when this story occurred. She was somehow miraculously beautiful. Miraculously beautiful, like world-famous beauty. See, she was so beautiful, in fact, that when she and Abraham enter Egypt, the entire country is abuzz about her beauty. And so Abraham looks around, and he sees Egyptian men looking lustfully at his wife, and that fills him with fear. He freaks out. Because he realizes there's, there's nothing to keep those men from killing me and taking my wife as their own. So once again, Abraham feels fear. And every time we feel fear, we face a choice. Where will you go with that fear? Will you take it to God in faith? Will you trust God to protect you? Hadn't God just said to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. That is a promise of protection. Abraham could trust God to keep his word and protect his family. But that's not the choice Abraham makes. He chooses option number two. He will take matters into his own hands. He will rely upon his intellect. He will once again craft a plan to rescue his family. Let's look at that plan starting in the next verse, verse 13. Here's Abraham's plan. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Now that crafty plan is actually partially true. Sarah was actually Abraham's half-sister. Now I know that sounds really weird, really gross to us. In the ancient world it wasn't. Population was a lot smaller so they had to marry their relatives. Set that aside for a moment. The plan is half true. It's kind of deceptive. It's kind of tricky. But it's, but it's half true. And it's actually from a human perspective, it's a really smart plan. And here's why. Because if the Egyptians believe that Sarah is Abraham's wife, then they can just kill him and take her and do what they want with her. But if they believe that she is Abraham's sister, well, then there were laws that were in Abraham's favor. You see, in Egypt, if you were a man and you wanted to take an unmarried woman, you had to negotiate with her family before you could have her. Abraham knew that, and so he assumed if if some powerful Egyptian wants to take my wife, he will have to negotiate with me, her brother, for her. That will give me the time I need to stall, take Sarah, and get out of Egypt. It's actually a really smart plan. This, this idea, calling her my sister, will give me time to rescue her. No one will get hurt except the, you know, the Egyptian guy who really wanted Sarah. His feelings will be hurt, but no one will be physically in danger. It's a really smart plan, brilliant idea. There was just one little problem, one little thing that Abraham failed to anticipate. Look at the next verse. 
Verse 14, it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Abraham had a great plan, but he never anticipated that the guy who would take a liking to Sarah would be the king. Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. Pharaoh didn't have to negotiate. He was the king. He took whatever he wanted. He sees Sarah. He wants Sarah. He takes Sarah because she wasn't married, right? Because Abraham was passing her off as his sister. So Pharaoh just sweeps in and takes Sarah into his harem. Now he gives Abraham a a whole lot of wealth, a whole lot of, of riches for Sarah, but he doesn't ask permission. There are no negotiations. There is no time to get Sarah out of the country. Pharaoh simply takes her and makes her part of his harem. The plan backfired, totally fell apart. The wheels came off. Now Abraham has lost Canaan and he has lost his wife because he would not trust God. He would not rely upon God. Instead, he relied upon his strength, his resources to deliver him, his his great plan to deliver him, and his plan just ran into a brick wall, and there's nothing he can do about it. Fortunately, Abraham knew a very gracious God. In grace, God steps in and fixes the mess that Abraham has created. Look with me starting in verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they escorted him away and his wife and all that belonged to him. So God afflicts Pharaoh with plagues. And Pharaoh looks around and thinks, why are these diseases, these plagues coming upon my house? Well, I just took this woman into my harem. So he goes and questions her and finds out she is not what he assumed. She is not Abraham's sister. She is his wife. And so realizing that he's been tricked and this wrath of God has fallen upon him, Pharaoh calls Abraham to account. Pharaoh calls Abraham up and he rebukes him. And that's the really sad part of the story because Abraham is the man of God. Abraham is the man chosen by God to be a blessing to the world. And yet in this story, who is the righteous man? Not Abraham. He's the deceiver. He's the trickster. He's the schemer. It's Pharaoh, the pagan king who thought he was a God himself. He's the innocent one. He's the righteous one. As soon as he knows what has happened, as fast as he can, he obeys God. It's actually interesting. The last few words in verse 19 are really short. Pharaoh simply says, here, wife, take, go. Pushes this guy out of his country as fast as he can. Actually escorts him to the border to make sure nothing will happen to him because he's so scared of the wrath of God. The pagan king is the righteous one. Abraham didn't trust God and the result was he jeopardized his wife and he brought shame to the name of God. That's what happens whenever we rely on ourselves and take matters into our own hands rather than trusting God to protect and provide. 
Now, I wish I could say that that was the end of Abraham's struggles, that after chapter 12, he headed in a good direction. Well, he did for a little bit. Things are actually much better for a little while. We'll look at some of those victories later in our series. But, but after a time of obedience, Abraham struggles again. He fails a third time, a third test. He fails the test of faith. This one is in a context not of danger, but of delay. Facing long delay, Abraham fails once again. Look at chapter 16. Look with me starting in verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abraham, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. After Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abraham's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. So let me set this up for you. Abraham and Sarah have been back in the promised land for 10 years. 10 years in the promised land, living under God's promise that God would would make them into a mighty nation, give them many descendants, and yet 10 years and they have no child. 10 years and Sarah has still been wrestling with infertility. She's 75 years old now, way past childbearing age and yet still unable to get pregnant. And remember, infertility, it's bad in any age, but it was worse back then because back then life was all about having children. As a wife, if you could not provide a child for your husband, you were believed to be cursed. That's what the world thought of you. You were cursed and you were a failure of a wife in the ancient world if you couldn't bear children. And so you can just imagine how desperate Sarah must have felt. Ten more years of failing to give Abraham a child. You can just imagine how badly she wanted to give her husband a son. And yet she couldn't. Ten more years of of infertility. It's not working. Nothing is working out. And so feeling afraid that this trial of infertility will never end, Sarah does just what Abraham does. Feeling fear, she takes matters into her own hands and she crafts a plan. She comes up with a plan. Abraham, take my servant, my maid, Hagar, take her as your own and have a child with her. She will become pregnant and as soon as she has given birth, I will claim the child as my own. Now, we look at that plan and it sounds horrendous to us. We would call that adultery, okay? Because Abraham would be having sex with a woman who's not his wife. That is adultery. And and we look at it and say, man, they are treating Hagar horribly. She is nothing better than a sex slave in this account. So it's horrible to us, but we do have to pause. This is really hard for us to do. We have to pause and we have to remember, you cannot judge people in the ancient world through your eyes. You have to remember what they had of the word of God at this time. How much of it did they have? None of it. They didn't have any of the Bible yet. They didn't know what we knew or what we now know. So Abraham, he didn't have the law. Law wouldn't come for 500 years later. He knew in his conscience that adultery was wrong, but he did not yet know that this counted as adultery. 
In fact, actually in the ancient world, this plan that Sarah crafts, not only is it legal, but it is actually necessary. In the laws of the ancient world, if a wife could not bear children for her husband and had a maid, she was required to do this, to give the maid to her husband so that he could have a child through her. This was the loving thing to do as a wife in the ancient world. So we look at it and it's repulsive to us. But for Sarah, this was necessary. This was proper. This was right. She is not doing an immoral thing. It's immoral today, not back then. She's not disobeying God either because God had promised, I will give Abraham children, but he had not specified that it would be through Sarah. It's not actually till the next chapter, chapter 17, that he says anything about Sarah. So Sarah's assuming, well, Abraham needs to have children. I can't give him any children, so the right thing to do, the proper thing to do, is to help God out. Maybe God's having a hard time fixing my womb. I don't know what's going on, but maybe God needs assistance. So I will do the thing that everyone does in the ancient world. I will fix it. She crafts a plan that is moral, that is wise, that is proper, that is necessary. Abraham jumps at it because it was a good plan. So they craft this, this good plan. How does it turn out? Not so well. Doesn't work out well. Why does it not work out well? Because look at their great plan. Great plan, really well crafted. There's just one thing that's missing from this great plan. God. God's not in the plan at all. The only place where God appears is in verse two where Sarah blames God. He is withholding this, this child from me. God is blamed. God is, is not trusted. Neither of them seek the permission of God. Neither of them seek the advice of God. It is not wrong for Sarah to make a plan. It is not wrong for Sarah to look for a solution to infertility. It is not wrong for, for Abraham to listen to his wife and agree to her plan. What's wrong is that they make a plan that leaves God out. God's not part of the equation at all. They don't seek his guidance. They don't seek his permission. They don't rely upon him at all. They craft a plan, and anytime you craft a plan and leave God out, it's not going to work out well. So Hagar, she gets pregnant. She has a son. He will be named Ishmael. We read about him later in the chapter. She has a son named Ishmael, but that son is not the son of promise. Look with me at chapter 17 for just a moment. Chapter 17, verse 18. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, Hagar's son, might live before you. That is, might Ishmael receive the promises that you have made? But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Now, God doesn't need their help. God is not going to bless their attempt to to fix something that God couldn't fix. Now, Now, Ishmael was blessed by God. God took care of him, but God did not make him the promised heir. Ishmael did not receive the promises because God had something greater in mind. God's plan all along was to do something supernatural so that all the glory would go to God. God is gonna make Sarah pregnant, but it's not soon enough yet. It's not hard enough yet for God. He waits until she's 90 years old. Then he gives her the miraculous son named Isaac. So Ishmael, this this child that, that Sarah and Abraham schemed to create, he is not the son of promise. And worst of all, he actually becomes a source of conflict in the household. 
Immediately, Hagar and Sarah are at war with one another. They never get along again. Abraham's household was was torn apart by these two women. Then they have two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Those two men have descendants who are called for Isaac, the Jews, for Ishmael, the Arabs. This choice by Abraham and Sarah to take matters into their own hands is the reason we have had 4,000 years of conflict and warfare between the Jews and Arabs. It's the sons of these men. Why are they fighting today? Because Abraham and Sarah were not willing to trust God 4,000 years ago. Instead, they took matters into their own hands and brought suffering to all. That's Abraham's third failure of faith in a time of delay. Finally, his fourth failure of faith, it actually looks exactly like one we have already studied. When he faced danger a second time, he made the same sinful choice. Turn to chapter 20. We'll just look at a couple verses here. Chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now, Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Sarah is about 90 years old at this point. She's very old and yet still a worldwide beauty. That makes Abraham afraid as he travels in a land that seems immoral, that seems violent. And so what does he do with his fear? Same thing he did the last time. Rather than trust God with it, he takes matters into his own hands. Crafts this brilliant plan. Once again, I'll pass her off as my sister so that I'll have time to negotiate and get her out of there. It fails yet again. In the same way, he didn't anticipate the king, Abimelech, taking an interest in Sarah. He doesn't have to negotiate. He just takes her, makes her part of his harem, and once again, God has to step in. Abraham has totally failed. Sarah is lost. And so God comes down and does the same thing to Abimelech he did to Pharaoh. He curses his family, brings disease, actually an infertility to his family. He gives Abimelech a dream to reveal what is going on. And then this is the really sad part. Abimelech calls Abraham in and look what Abimelech says in verse nine. Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Bimelech's not a follower of God. He is not a worshiper of God. He is a pagan king, and yet he's the righteous one. Abraham is the unrighteous one. He's the one who's brought shame to the name of God because once again, he was not willing to trust God to protect and provide. He took matters into his own hands, jeopardized his wife, and brought shame to the reputation of God. Four times Abraham felt fear. And all four times he chose in that moment of fear to take matters into his own hands, to rely on his intellect, his strength, his resources to win the day rather than trusting God to protect and provide. When you look at the life of Abraham, you realize life really is just like repelling. It's all about faith. If you want life to work well, you must trust You must learn to trust God and lean back into his almighty hands. That's the only way that you're going to make it safely when life goes vertical. 
If you're trying to do it on your own two feet like Abraham was, then at some point, something happens that you were not anticipating. Something goes wrong. Your feet slip and you go face first into the wall. There is only one way to make it successfully through life. It's the way of faith. So many people on our planet don't understand that. The vast majority of people on this planet who believe that there is a God, they don't get that, that this is how you get right with God. Instead, they think it's about them. It's about their strength, their good works, their good deeds, their charitable giving, their attendance at church or synagogue or mosque. They're, they're trying to earn their salvation. They're trying to do salvation on their own two feet. That doesn't work. That will never work. You cannot earn salvation. The only way to be saved is through faith. You must lean back into the hands of the Almighty God in faith and trust Him to save you. You have to trust that the death of Jesus, God's Son, was enough to pay for all of your sins. You must trust that His resurrection from the dead was enough to set you free from the penalty and power of sin. If you are trying to earn your way to God, if you are trying to earn eternal life through what you do, through being here this morning, that is a path that will never work. You will end up face first in the wall at some point. The only way to find salvation, the only way to find eternal life is to lean back and trust God. Trust that Jesus, his son, really did die to pay for all your sins and rise from the dead to set you free. For those of us who have trusted Jesus as our savior, our need for faith has only begun. The rest of our lives, our our journey through this life as followers of God, it comes down to faith. It is all about faith. You make it through this life well as a follower of Christ when you choose to trust. When you lean back into the hands of God and let him carry you through the trials of life. When you try to do it on your own, turning to your resources, your intellect, your wisdom, it goes as poorly for you as it did for Abraham. We must learn to walk in faith, to trust God with the trials of life. Now that's easy to say, but how do we actually do it? What does this look like practically to live this kind of life as followers of Jesus? I want to give you some principles that have guided me, some practical advice that has led me in this journey of faith. Here are some practical principles that's helped me to walk in faith with God. So just some practical things to think about. The first is, as a follower of God, if I want to walk in faith, the first thing is I need to expect trials. I need to expect that at some point the wall is going to go vertical and life is going to get hard. As followers of Christ, we tend to, to think that if I, if I just believe in God and walk with God and obey God, then life will be easy for me. It will work out well. That's not what happened for Abraham. He walked with God. He obeyed God. He left his whole family, his home, went hundreds of miles to a place he'd never seen. He totally obeyed God and that's when life got hard. Following Christ today does not exempt you from pain tomorrow. Not this side of heaven. We live in a broken world. It is full of suffering and pain and trials for every person on the planet, including us. So expect that trials are coming. Expect that they will find you. Often right after you have really obeyed God well, you will face a trial. And the moment that you face that trial, you will feel fear. 
You will fear for your safety, for your health, for your financial security, for your future. You will fear for your family. You will fear that this trial will never end. And remember, whenever you feel fear, you face a choice. You need to recognize that fact. You need to recognize that fear gives you a choice. When you feel fear set into your heart, you need to stop and remind yourself right now, right here, this feeling of fear, it's giving me a choice. I get to choose what I do with this fear. I get to choose where I take this fear. You cannot exempt yourself from fear. All of us will feel fear in this life. Your choice is what you do with it. Will you take it to God? Will you lay your fear at God's feet and trust him to provide and protect you in the midst of whatever you're afraid of? Or will you take matters into your own hands and rely on on your strength, your resources to to provide for you and take care of you? Let me give you some, some practical examples as you think about facing this choice. At some point, many of us will, will feel afraid that we're going to lose our job. What do you do in the midst of that fear that you're going to lose your job? Well, you can choose to take matters into your own hands. And you're just going to work crazy hours and neglect your family because that's what everyone else at work does to make sure they hold on to their jobs. Or you can take your fear to God. You can trust him to provide for you and you can live a balanced life trusting your career in his almighty hands. Some of you right now, some of you students, you are afraid that you're going to fail a class. You're facing finals. It is a terrifying prospect. What do you do with that fear? Well, you can take matters into your own hands and you can cheat a little bit or lie a little bit or whatever is required, whatever all the other students are doing to pass that class or you can choose to trust God. You study your tail off, but then you trust the grades to God. You walk in obedience with God and trust him to provide. And yeah, if you fail, it's okay because you're in his hands. And heaven is not earned by good grades. It's going to be okay. You walk in faith. Some of you are afraid that you are going to be single for your entire life. You're afraid that you will never find that boyfriend or girlfriend who will become a fiance and, and a spouse. What do you do with that fear of perpetual singleness? Well, you can choose to take matters into your own hands. You're going to step in and you are going to expand the pool of dating options. Outside just mature believers, you're going to look elsewhere because, yeah, that guy's not a believer, but he's so nice. Or, yeah, that girl, she's not mature in her faith, but she's so fun to be with. And so you take matters into your own hands or you can choose to trust God. You can choose to believe that even if you are single for the rest of your life, you can be happy because God is more powerful than your dating life. God is more powerful than your singleness. He can give you joy and significance and peace even if you never get married. All of us struggle with fear. From time to time, maybe many times, we struggle with fear, and when we feel afraid, we face a choice. Where will you take that fear? Will you take it to the feet of God? Will you trust Him to provide for you and protect you? Or will you take matters into your own hands and rely on your intellect, your abilities, your strength to save the day? So, we are called to, to recognize that fear gives us a choice. Once we have chosen to trust God, to rest in Him to provide for us, what do we do next? And this is always the part that people struggle with. So I'm called to trust God, but, but I think I'm also probably called to make plans sometimes in life. It seems like God gave me a brain so I can make plans. So I want to talk for just a moment. I want to end by talking. How do you make godly plans? rather than ungodly plans like, like Abraham did. Let me give you some, some thoughts. How do you make godly plans? Well, the key
key idea is a godly plan has God at the center of it. All four times that Abraham made his brilliant plans in the stories we looked at, something was missing. God. God wasn't sought. God wasn't prayed to. There was no attempt to seek God's guidance or approval. Abraham just made a plan based on his own human logic, and that plan went badly. Why did it go badly? Well, we're warned in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You are fallible. There is a limit to your ability to predict the future. If you try to make plans on your own without consulting God, you will fail because you are fallible. So how do you make these godly plans with God at the center? Just a few steps. This is how I do it. Four things to think about. Number one, you pray for God's guidance. Beginning, middle, end, all the way through, you ask God to help you. God is your father. He wants to help you. You just gotta ask him, please God, give me wisdom, give me guidance. Second, you obey God's word. If you are building a plan that in any way disobeys God, I can guarantee you that is not what God wants for you. God never is going to bless a plan that runs contrary to his revealed will. So you obey God as best you can. Third, you ask God's people for advice. Come and ask the, your, your mentors, your leaders, those who are, are a little ahead of you in the walk of faith. Ask them for advice. Ask them to guide and direct you. And then finally, fourth, once you have crafted your plan, you submit it to God. You remember that, that God knows what's best, you don't. So what's best for you may not be the plan working out. That's often been the case in my life. The best thing that I needed at that point in my life was for my great-grand plan to fail. I didn't know that, but God did. He knows what's best. He absolutely knows what's best in any situation in your life. So you create your awesome plan and then you put it at at the feet of God and you say, God, not my will, but your will be done. Because you know what's best. You see the future in perfect clarity. I do not. So I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna act on this plan. I'm gonna take these steps, but I put it at your feet and trust that you know what's best. Whatever you choose to do, I trust it is what's best for me. That's how you walk with the Lord. In the trials and strains of life, you will feel fear often. When you do, you have a choice. You can trust God with your fear. You can trust him to protect and provide for you, or you can take matters into your own hands. If you choose the latter option, you will end up in as much pain and suffering as Abraham did. If you choose instead to trust God, life's not gonna be easy. It's not easy this side of heaven, but it will be successful for you. You will walk with the Lord even when the wall goes vertical. He will carry you and watch over you if you will just trust. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who never disappoints. Even if circumstances might disappoint us, you do not. You are infinitely strong. You are a rope that will never break. You watch over us and protect us. In your almighty arms, we find absolute security. We thank you, Lord, that in grace, you have promised to protect us and provide for us if we will only rely upon you. And so I pray, Father, for every one of us as we go into this holiday season filled with trials and temptations. This is supposed to be a time of rest, but for so many of us, it's a time of stress. It's a time of difficulty and temptation and challenge. I pray, Father, that we would walk through this holiday season in faith, that when we feel afraid, that we would turn to you with our fears, that we would lay them at your feet and trust and believe that, that you care enough about us 
that you will protect us and provide for us. I pray, Father, as we go through this life, as we make our plans, I pray that we would put you at the center of them. I pray that you would give us your wisdom, that for every single individual person in this room, as they make plans for Christmas break, as they make plans for time with their relatives, as they make plans for the new year, I pray that they would put you at the center. I pray that you would guide and direct them and give them wisdom. I pray that you would lead them, Lord, not to the accomplishment of their plans, but that you would lead them to that which is truly best. We trust you, Lord, to do in our lives what is truly best. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Students, we pray for you to have a safe, blessed, godly holiday. See you when you come back.